Hello and welcome to our first episode of Spotlight on Women in Health Ventures, the podcast powered by Thea, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering women as entrepreneurs in healthcare. I'm Shabnam. So today our topic is tackling inequities in access to care. A significant barrier to healthcare is transportation. Millions of patients today struggle with transportation barriers that impact their ability to access quality healthcare and basic social needs. And this barrier not only affects patients' care, but also every stakeholder in the healthcare ecosystem given billions of dollars are lost per year due to missed appointments. For our first episode, we're joined by two women, Suman Ketpal and Christine Yang, who have built the first integrated transportation solution called Riot Health. Suman and Christine were part of the founding team while juniors in the Vagelos Life Sciences and Management dual degree program, in short LSM, at the University of Pennsylvania. Now Suman is a fourth-year medical student at Yale, and Christine is a healthcare investor at NEA. One fun fact for the listeners, all four of us, Shabnam, myself, Irene, Suman, and Christine, actually met at Penn and became friends through the LSM program. So we're very excited to bring to you an insight-packed conversation with our dear friends and guests, Suman and Christine. Suman, Christine, thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. Uh, it's It's been a while since I've seen you guys in person and and. I don't think we've ever had an opportunity to like sit down formally and talk about your experience with Ride Health. So I'm really excited to to hear the full story today. Yeah, we're super excited to to share Ride Health with you. Thank you guys so much. This is such a special opportunity and I love what you guys are doing with Thea. I think it's so important to create this sort of community for female founders. And, you know, Suman and I, back when we started Ride Health in 2015, I don't think we had anything like this before. And so, you know, we're super excited to share just our experiences and hopefully it's helpful to people. Yeah, excited to have you guys. Thank you so much. In your own words, can you tell us about Ride Health and its mission? Yeah, so I always find it helpful to explain Ride Health in terms of what we're trying to do. And basically the goal for us is to make sure that no patient ever misses an appointment or can't get home because they don't have a ride. How we do that is we have designed a technology solution that enables the transportation provider, the provider itself, so the physician or the hospital, and the health plans or the insurers to coordinate and talk to each other in order to make that process as seamless as possible. That requires an effort on predicting which patients may need a ride and also getting that patient to and from their doctor's appointments by coordinating and calling those rides for the patient. And then finally, the sort of the last leg of the stool is working with health plans and transportation providers to streamline that payment process so that at the end of the day, everyone just needs to focus on their job and we take care of the rest. Like, so, so is it like an Uber for getting from your home to your doctor's office? Is that like the simplest way to describe it? 
That's right, but we have a more sophisticated approach. So Uber is one of our many transportation providers, but we also make it priority to partner with other transportation providers in order to effectively build itineraries for patients to get from point A to point B. So Uber is just a part of the higher level solution for ride health. That's awesome. I imagine you're helping a lot of patients along the way kind of ease off one of the big burdens that they have as part of their patient care. So now I'd like to rewind to the beginning. Can you walk us through the origin of Ride Health? Yes, of course. So our team formed at the end of 2015, and Christine and I, as well as another one of our co-founders, Vedant, were taking a healthcare entrepreneurship class at Wharton. And basically within this course, we were building business models and hopefully ventures to address key healthcare issues like patient education, medication compliance, and other social determinants of health. And during this course, I happened to be volunteering like many other pre-meds did at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia or CHOP. And it was this experience that actually inspired Ride Health. So one night I was nearing the end of my shift and I encountered a family of three in the lobby. I learned that their son had undergone a round of chemotherapy and was very weak. And his father had approached me and mentioned that their ride of all things had just canceled on them. And I was so shocked by this experience. And I consulted with the nurse, the reception and other social workers, but really had no luck. And like any college student at the time, I was very familiar with Uber and taxis. So I ended up calling uh, this family an Uber ride and soon they were on their way. I was very intrigued by this entire ordeal and the fact that it was a ride of all things that was burdening this patient and his family. And I did some research and found that transportation is a key barrier to healthcare. Uh, the patient suffers, providers lose revenue from no-show appointments, and insurers incur a lot of the downstream healthcare costs due to these missed appointments. So I shared this experience with Vedant and Christine, and we began to do more digging and research about medical transportation. And Christine at the time was on the board of one of the larger healthcare organizations at Penton called WUC, or Wharton Undergraduate Healthcare Organization. And through her, we uh, connected with Imran, who had actually published on this topic from his own experiences. So the four of us started to build what is now called Ride Health, and each of us brought this unique perspective. I was hopefully going to be a physician and brought the clinical aspect of patient care to Ride Health. Uh, Christine had a very strong financial background and built many of our first uh business models and uh, revenue projections for the company. Vedant brought his experiences in product design and Imran contributed his experiences in healthcare policy and social determinants of health. Wow, that's such a touching story. And I think it's kind of a testament to the, the patients that you're helping and the impact that you can make. So you said that you have your personal experience, but I'm sure like the access to care market is such a vast space. How did you begin to understand the market in which you were trying to enter with your product? Yeah, so I think someone's experiences in witnessing that patient struggle 
with getting transportation was a really seminal moment for all of us because that was when we realized that this wasn't just happening in a vacuum to one patient in rural Pennsylvania. This was a much more systemic issue. And, you know, we were shocked by the fact that this was even happening in the first place, but it also intrigued us because we wanted to understand how the system was letting this happen. And so that's when we really started to spend a dedicated effort in understanding the space, which we'll probably refer to as NEMT, uh, which stands for Non-Emergency Medical Transportation. And so what we started to realize was that these existing transportation coordinators, uh, which are brokers, were just sort of operating at a very archaic level. So Logisticare is the largest transportation coordinator out there. And basically what we realized was that they had no tech. Uh, They were still using paper printouts. They're calling rides through the phone. I mean, it was basically like a cable company. Um, And so that made this whole process of calling rides and coordinating rides very fragmented. And also these transportation providers who are the people that have these fleet of vans who are going to pick up these patients, they were also using their own dispatch systems, uh, which didn't integrate well with the rest of the, the system. And so these providers, these these transportation providers, these doctors and coordinators were just not communicating with each other, which was a big reason why these patients were not getting the rides that they needed to make their appointments on time or they were waiting for three or four hours after their appointment to get home. And so we started to piece together how the system actually worked um, and where it didn't. And that's when we got fired up. And, you know, we were just like, hey, there's actually an easier solution here. And what if we were just able to create a better platform to connect all of these people to make sure that patients were being taken care of and that they were getting the rides they needed to get to their appointments. Also an important point is that whenever you're trying to build a venture, the idea that so much money is already being pulled into NEMT, I think it's like $6 billion. If you take into account uh, $1 billion of cab vouchers and $5 billion from Medicare and Medicaid, yet, you know, even though all this money is being allocated, it's not being allocated in a way that's beneficial to providers in terms of lost revenue and burnout and also patients with missing and um, dealing with all these these rights in addition to their own medical care. So given that there's so much money already allocated, it's just a matter of communicating a, a better solution and allowing providers and health systems to buy into a better product. And then I think another thing is just how big the market was already for NEMT and how much of a problem this was. Providers were also just bleeding so much revenue every year because of these no-shows. I mean, I think it was 4 million, 4 million patients uh, miss their appointments every year. And that translates into $4 billion in direct costs alone. And that's sort of just the the tip of the iceberg. I mean, patients that need these rides are usually from pretty vulnerable populations from a health standpoint. So if they miss their appointments and can't get the treatment they need or the medications that they need, they're at higher risk of getting hospitalized, which is a huge burden from a cost standpoint for these payers, but, but also for these health systems too. 
So now you have all these big ideas, but when do you actually decide to start to translate that vision into a tangible product? Like when's that transition point? Yeah, so I wouldn't say it's just a single point in time. It's more of a process. I think once we solidified our market, our customer, um, and doing the basic research on the industry, we started out just whiteboarding our product in broad strokes. So the four of us would just meet several times a week, spend you know a good chunk of time in the afternoon just sitting in these small group study rooms on campus and, and just brainstorm. Um, and so once we had a sense for the needs and the requirements of our product, we started creating these wireframes. And so what we built was a simple dashboard for the care coordinator. So For instance, say we want to call a ride for you, Irene. We mapped out features like how to call a ride, a chat box that the care coordinator could use to interface with the transportation provider on when he was leaving to pick up Irene, and a map to track how far Irene was from the hospital, things like that. So when it came time to build out our minimum viable product, we had a really, really clear idea of what we wanted to build. So this was at a point before we started fundraising and and we had any funds in the bank, but we knew that we wanted to build something as a demo that we could use in our pitches. So the four of us ended up bootstrapping the first product and and to build out this initial platform. And, And we're so glad we did that because it really helped us understand and wrap our heads around the idea and the product. And then there were there were also so many features that were integrated with the feedback of advisors and users, particularly social workers, uh, when we were uh, building the product and also piloting with our first version of that product. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure uh, that's really exciting. And someone you also mentioned advisors and you know users that would help you give and provide feedback, so that you're able to include all these features that you might not have thought about before. So how did you go about forming those um, advisor relationships or mentor relationships that could provide the right inputs at the right points to help guide the ship? Yes, um, I think just being students at Penn, we were, we were in a really great place at an institution that really prioritized innovation and startups and this merging of business and medicine. I think the the healthcare entrepreneurship department and health policy at, at Wharton professors were very helpful. And we had multiple meetings with pretty pretty much all of those professors on, you know, with coming in with questions and getting their constructive feedback and sometimes pushback. And also through the life sciences and management, there were lots of advisors. Uh, Barbara Schilberg, I actually did an internship with her when I was applying to medical school and pitched Ride Health when it was like literally an infant and had a courtesy meeting with her. And she gave us so much feedback on the business model and Christine and and Barbara worked together on uh, finalizing uh, the cap table and the financials and the revenue and all that sort of stuff. And also the the innovation office at Penn, Roy Rosen was a big key opinion leader for Ride Health, Mike Serpa also at Penn. These people uh, were very, very fundamental towards integrating new features and also so many calls with physicians and and patient social workers as well that helped us throughout this process. So it seems like a, a lot of the or the majority of your advisors ended up with the professors you already had relationships with or the their connections that they could maybe introduce you to. 
So if, if you were to give advice to people that may not have the privilege of having those connections already or um, having acquaintances such, what would you tell them is the best way to kind of form those connections? I think, you know, even if you have a mentor network, it might not be ideal for kind of what you're looking for specifically in that phase of development in your company. And so I really just encourage people to leverage your your first degree network and see who they know and then have them introduce you through warm introductions. Um, and most people are really willing to talk, especially if it's a friend of a friend. And so we did a lot of that as well. I would say like, you know, last resort, you can always cold call or cold email because you know, when you're on a campus, everyone knows that you're a student and they're there because they want to help, right? So when the time came for if we needed a specific financial advice or we just wanted people to take a look at our pitch deck and make sure that there wasn't any a key component missing in, in telling our story, it was really easy to just find mentors either organically or inorganically through those means. Yeah. And I also don't necessarily go into a meeting thinking that this person is going to handhold and support you all throughout this process. There are so many folks that we met that we didn't really check in after, or they weren't as excited or they weren't as eager to contribute to our mission and all of that, which is totally fine. It was just, we were grateful to even have that conversation in the first place. So just having realistic expectations, of course, being really prepared for these meetings with questions and knowing their background and knowing what their interests might be. There are plenty of researchers who we spoke to who were trying to publish on medical transportation and, and us as sort of a for-profit business, we had to maintain a appropriate relation with those people as well. So it's interesting. Yeah. And digging a little more into those conversations that you had with these advisors and other stakeholders that you tapped into, do you recall maybe the you know harshest or most critical feedback that you received? I just think a running theme was that we were young and, you know, circulation and, and these other companies who are run by people with so many years of experience were, were just going to surpass us. So I think consistently being underestimated, which I actually found to work in our favor most of the time, because we would often blow them away. There were many times where uh, when I was trying to bring uh, new, Ride Health to New Haven, I was very gung-ho about it. And I emailed the director of center that was pretty, pretty large. And basically after the email exchange, I showed up to the office and he was like, whoa, I expected you to be a 35 year old man. And I'm like, oh, interesting. (laughs) Because I was like email, email exchange. Very interesting. So I was like, oh, okay. Like that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's great. We like got along so well and I didn't take any offense, but I was just like, hmm, like there are a lot of assumptions you make when you're interacting with someone over email. Yeah, that statement is powerful because I think it kind of tells something about what the healthcare industry and maybe even the, you know, the entrepreneurship sector, especially what the perception is there and who is viewed more favorably industry-wide. So that's very interesting. Okay, so were there times where these stakeholders that you talked to had conflicting advice because I'm sure you you went to uh, many different investors like you said the researchers and some others have kind of their own vested interest so as they were providing you feedback I'm sure there were times where everything that they said weren't really what exactly you were looking for or what one person said was the opposite of what the other person said like how did you manage that yeah, I mean, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So we just to recount all the stakeholders for Ride Health, you have patients, you have care coordinators, you have health system executives or purchasers, um, investors, payers, and transportation providers. 
so there's a lot there there are a lot of people to cater to and we certainly did that through our communications with each of them and all these people have different interests for the health system it's addressing the no-show rate and also um allowing for optimal coordination of care for discharge and that patients often are ready to go, but due to transportation barriers, they're stuck in the hospital and then the hospital can't turn over fast enough, thus compromising revenue. Payers don't want patients to miss their appointments because there's a direct consequence of compromised health outcomes and increased costs. Transportation providers, they don't work at full capacity and basically rely on more rides to increase their margins. Investors, of course, want return and care coordinators and nurse navigators, they have this burden of the paper printouts that Christine was alluding to with Logisticare. And of course, patients need to get to the doctor because they have much more on their mind aside from the ride. But we thought that Right Health Solution aligns all of these incentives in a very seamless way as a software solution that appeals to all parties. So we didn't really necessarily see people were sort of going at it with different intentions. But I think uh, the the goal was many providers, from my experiences, often push back if the solution has to like adapt perfectly into their current workflow. Otherwise, physicians and nurse navigators, social workers, they will not use it. So that was sort of my priority as someone coming from more clinical perspective. Yeah, that's awesome that you were able to kind of capture the essence of what each stakeholder was looking for and what their like driving motivation was. And you were able to kind of like merge that all into one solution and cater to all. So that's awesome. Yeah, so We've laid the groundwork right now. We've talked about the product and the market and such, but I'm sure when you're pitching to investors, they're really interested to hear the numbers that you have to put around the market and the potential revenue streams, et cetera. So how did you approach the financial uh, modeling aspect that you would present to investors? So we were lucky because we had already known the NEMT space very intimately before we even started putting together a pitch deck. Imran had spent a lot of time in the space prior to that, um, and we had done a lot of homework in terms of reading what literature was out there and defining that market. I think the important thing to distinguish between is what your total potential market is and the addressable market that you're hoping to access in the near term with the funds that you're raising. And when you present in front of AVC, that's what you should be focusing on. And so this exercise is much more of a bottoms up type of model. And so what we did is, you know, we went from the ground up. We thought of every single assumption from dollars per visit based on our business model, the no-show rate in order to calculate the return on investment for providers, growth by clinic, what types of customers we were working with, whether they were small, medium, large hospitals or PCPs. So this required a lot of fact checking and sort of sanity checking. So we had these incredible advisors that we went to. Barbara, as Simon had mentioned before, was really instrumental in helping us understand whether our projections were reasonable or if we were totally off about something. And then, you know, just one other thing to keep in mind is that 
VCs have likely done a lot of work on the market that you're going after already. They know that it could be a billion dollar market one day. And I didn't realize this until later. It's not so much important that you have this crazy detailed market model, but informed projections about with the funds that you're raising now, what can you achieve and what are the milestones today, tomorrow, and uh, a year from now? right? And projections are important. It's like making a promise and documenting it on paper because in the future, you're going to be checked against your projections when you raise a future round. So it's super important that these numbers are backable, achievable, but also optimistic and reflective of the potential of your company. I think also adding on to that, thinking about additional use cases for your product, like for us, We had select patient populations, initially cancer patients who were needing chemotherapy radiation because to investors, you know, for me, it's like I, as a future provider, I'm thinking about the patient needing to go to chemotherapy, uh, you know, three times a week, or it's sort of a scheduled need to go to the doctor. Whereas an investor is thinking, oh, that's like a for sure ride that's recurring, hence more revenue potential, right? So you have to think of that. And aside from cancer patients, thinking about like hospital discharge, and then, you know, aside from going to outpatient appointments, thinking about clinical trial related transportation or skilled nursing facility transportation, or maybe how can we integrate pharmacies in the itinerary because patients often need to drop by to the pharmacy before they go home. And now we're seeing a sort of pivot with COVID and the pandemic towards transporting health workers or even addressing food and housing concerns for patients. That's awesome that, you know, you're adapting to the the needs of the market yeah. and the needs of the people. Yeah. And, and hence expanding the market mm-hmm. opportunity. So people like Christine, who's looking at investments now are like, whoa, like this is such a huge opportunity. It's it's beyond NEMT. It's, it's much bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So so you've made the model, you've crunched out the numbers, and you thought about the, your growth plans year over year, um, how that is going to work out. So now you need to pitch. You need to pitch out to the investors. Um, how was that experience? And how did you pull all of these things together, your ideas, your numbers, in order to make a coherent story and convince people to give their own dollars to invest in your company? I think it says a lot when you personally bootstrap your own funds. So I think having that minimum viable product convinced a lot of folks that we were serious about this. But in terms of getting investors, that was very hard. So we had a lot of advisors that we had mentioned through Penn, the medical school, the business school, and several of those people actually became angel investors. And we were very, very excited to have our first angel investor come in February of 2017. So about a year after the company was founded. So, and it only takes one. Once you have one, the dominoes all all fall and it really, really helps. We also had like family and friends invest, of course, but our first official angel investor was in February of 2017. And I think also going into meetings with advisors who know so much about the industry you're trying to enter into as a future entrepreneur, in the back of your mind, kind of seeing them as a potential investor. So, You have to manage those relationships in a way that are personal yet formal because you really never know what the interests are of of those advisors in the long term. 
Mm. What you said about the you just need one and the domino kind of falls from there and and you get more. Um, that really resonates because I was yeah. listening to another person, Arlen. She's the founder of Backstage Capital, and when she was starting out, she was doing all these cold calls and mentioned that her goal was to get one person to give her money or one person to believe in her. And if she could convince one, then she knew that she could convince others too. For sure. When you're reaching out to these investors, you know, what helped you get people's attention? What about the company? What about your reaching out email? What about your their presentation skills help? Yeah, I mean, I think just making our pitch very strong, so like quantifying the need, being like the system is broken, we need to disrupt it, like having a very punchy pitch that people from regardless of their interest in medicine and healthcare could sort of latch onto, um, and also just traction. So you know, we we had answers to every question they had. Like if they're like, oh, have you spoken to these people? We're like, yeah, we've spoken to like hundreds of social workers. We spoke, we just had a phone call with this guy. We would like leverage a phone call when we were talking to another person. We're like, oh, and then we would like name drop, like, but it was all legitimate. Like we would be like, oh, we're planning these pilots at X and Y institutions. And we're in the process of finalization. We're also talking to the the tech review committee and this is happening. So making sure we update folks in a very timely way. We used to send emails to like our Ride Health community, which really, really helped us communicate the traction and then get their buy-in ultimately. Gotcha. One of the key questions that we want to ask you about fundraising and the pitching process. We know that women um, statistically have a harder time trying to convince investors um, and to get invested. So I was wondering if throughout your process, if you faced any challenges as a woman trying to, you know, found this company and go to the investors and convince them. I think uh, from my perspective, it wasn't a female issue. It was a young issue. It was age because I've probably done like at least tens to twenties of pitches at this point. And I was always the youngest person, which I was excited by. Like, I think being young, you're just more innovative, I would argue in general, you don't necessarily, some folks will sort of be like, oh, that's the system, that's the way it is. Whereas children, I feel are like the most, they're the most creative people. Like it's like published that children are, if you if you have that mentality of, of being creative and innovative and maybe questioning why things are the way they are, like it's actually very revitalizing and very important. Whereas if you have someone who has like looked at the industry for like 30 plus years, of course, like they're so qualified about it, they might, you know, maybe fresh eyes is, is good. So as I had mentioned earlier, we were often underestimated, uh, denied, and then maybe we would have some traction or the, the networks would sort of overlap. And then we would be reapproached by investors, advisors, customers even. But in all, I think it made us better as founders because we were prepared for every question and we never really took any opportunity for granted. The amount of preparation for like just a little bit of money, like right now, was just, it was just amazing how we, we took every opportunity very seriously. I'm really glad to hear that um, you, you felt like you didn't really face any specific challenges because you were women, because of your gender. But to hear that um, you did face challenges because of your age, but you were able to kind of turn that into your strength. That's really good to hear. And I kind of want to pivot the question or kind of make the question broader and um, and direct this question to Christine, especially because now you're a venture capitalist, Um, you're an investor. And so 
from your end, through the past, through your experience, have you seen any biases or you know specific challenges for women entrepreneurs? And in general, do you have any advice for the female founders given the challenges you have identified? Yeah, so I definitely identify with someone, you know, in our in our time as founders. Uh, I think, in a sense, we are we were a bit naive because we didn't really experience kind of that comparison between you know, us as a female founder and, um, you know, what would it look like if, if we were male? And we were also lucky in that we had a co-ed team and a pretty diverse team. So we didn't really experience any of those effects. But, you know, being in VC, I, I see it's really not easy to be female. Female founders, females, females in business, they're up against a lot. So I think just if you're an ambitious young woman, it's really easy to be labeled as aggressive. And there's this pressure for women to be the perfect balance of nice and assertive. And we're forced to kind of live up to these expectations while we're also trying to run a company. And for some people, they're also raising a family and it's, it's you know, it's hard. And I would say like, I'm always constantly impressed by the female CEOs and founders that I meet. They're always, I feel like they're always way more prepared and way more impressive. But you also at the same time hear women getting lower valuations than men for companies that are of the same stage or even in the same industry. And I noticed that the industry definitely needs to change. But I also noticed that women tend to discount their own projections. And, and when they're asking for valuations in, in negotiations, they, they aim a bit lower. And so I think, you know, we need to do our part as women to work on being our own advocates. I, I guess my advice would just be, um, you know, when you're walking in a room and you're a female founder, just be aware of these inherent biases that others will have about you before you set foot in the room and keep that in mind when you present. But, you know, at the core of it, just know your worth and, and really fight for, for what you deserve. The, the bot, the aggressive piece is so, I've heard that so much and it's so frustrating you don't know how you need to behave to be an effective leader because you're up against this, the potential of this backlash. It's, it's incredibly frustrating. So I'm glad you brought this up and you're mentioning this. It's a little sad because it's not just the men that are saying these things. It's also other women. And uh, I mean, we, we were all a team, right? Like, you know, every success is a collective success for the industry as a whole. And so we really need to like stick out for each other and, and know what we're up against. You know, 10 years ago, women's health was considered niche. Honestly, not even 10 years ago, five years ago, maybe. And, and it's crazy because it's like 50% of the population. But that's really starting to pick up. You're starting to see a lot of female-led companies in the women's health space. And, and they're getting funding. And so it's amazing to see that. But it'll require a lot more heavy lifting on our part to get to a place where we're really um, equals. So we're coming to the end um, of our conversation. And just to kind of wrap things up, I'd like to ask each of you a question based on your perspective as a future clinician and as a venture capitalist. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs based on your experience with Bride Health? We can start with someone. 
So I think first and foremost, it's important to make sure that your solution truly integrates into the existing workflow of the care environment. So make sure you understand the status quo. For instance, for NEMT, Logisticare is an ancient solution that relies on paper printouts and phone calls to coordinate transportation, whereas Ride Health serves as a digitized, more modern solution for patients getting a ride to the doctor. I think it's also very important to speak to users of your solution and customers. Make sure that all the incentives are aligned from the insurer, the provider, and the patient, not only for the quality of care, but also financially speaking, when you pitch your business model to each of those stakeholders. I would also begin to think early on about potential integration with the electronic health record or EHR and try to have introductory calls with EHR professionals to assess whether this could be possible. And finally, for integration, it's really, really important and required to have your product be HIPAA compliant and be sure to coordinate with the tech review and legal review committees at the institutions that you hope to partner with. Another piece of advice I would have is to pitch everywhere for visibility and for feedback. I think it's very, very important to adapt your company and your business model to its optimal state. Getting advice from successful entrepreneurs in the space that you hope to operate is really important. And it also builds your confidence as a speaker and a professional. And the skill really needs to be learned early in college, ideally, because you'll see that public speaking comes in handy wherever your career paths Uh, may go. So focus in on the skill set early on. I think another piece of advice is to leverage your status as a student. Take advantage of all the pitch competitions and grants that are available to you. And also leverage your student status to meet with very important people in the industry that you're hoping to engage in or the market you're trying to engage in. Set up meetings with professors and learn about the work that they do and it's just a, it's a luxury to be at a place where brilliant minds are all together and, and, and work to collaborate with them. And also, of course, credibility. Um, always, always um, mention your institution, especially as a young founder. It goes a long way. And I think to close, I think um, as a future physician, in hindsight, I think that physicians are very critical in managing healthcare's most pressing issues. They are at the forefront of the community. They have pockets in business and policy potentially. And of course, they're in charge of caring for patients. And I think that physicians witness many healthcare inefficiencies that aren't even medical, um, often social determinants of health like transportation, food, housing, medication delivery issues that really trouble patients. And I think physicians have a duty to innovate or at least voice uh, solutions to these problems and inspire others to uh, manufacture solutions to these problems. And I would argue that medical education should sort of mirror this and promote innovation, education for entrepreneurship amongst medical students in programs and also residents. Christine, same question for you as a venture capitalist. What's your advice and your key takeaways from your experience as a co-founder of Ride Health? I think just when you're thinking about building something new and disrupting an existing industry, you're asking people to change the status quo. So um, what you want to keep in mind is, you know, you really need to understand who are the key decision makers. How do you align incentives in the current system? And ask yourself the question of why is your solution so much better than what's currently available that will drive people 
to, uh, to your product. So, you know, you're essentially powerless until you have those people on board. And I think that just starts with understanding your pain points, partnering with the health systems or whoever your customer is to create a solution that's truly fit for purpose. So, you know, key takeaway is find the key decision makers and and create incentives for them to work with you. You know, something else that I learned in kind of being a founder and also in VC, I truly started appreciating the value of really taking the time to lay the groundwork for your business in the first couple years of founding. You're never going to have as much control of your company as you do in the first couple years. So the best you can do is optimize what you can control. So things like, you know, what market you're going after, what is your business model? Does it make sense to everyone involved? What is your product vision? Building a really collaborative and open culture at your firm. This is going to set you up for success in the long run. And then I think last point to just leave you on is I think people as entrepreneurs think of investors as sort of financial sponsor. But I always say like, you know, don't just take the highest term sheet with the highest valuation. A really great venture investor is going to be your partner through it all. They're going to help you with so much more than just the cash on your balance sheet. They're going to help you build out your team. They're going to connect you with the right people to expand into new markets. There'll be a sounding board for you during pivotal times in your company and you need to make a strategic decision. And they're going to help you fundraise for for larger growth rounds that you'll need in the future. And I mean, at the end of the day, it's someone you're going to be working with for a pretty long time. So five to 10 years, and you're going to have to like them as a person. So I would really focus on rapport um, as opposed to kind of what valuation am I getting out of this? Like, is this like, you know, that is all something that you can work out down the road and Ideally, if you're thinking big picture, your Series A valuation isn't going to matter a whole lot to you. It's really about kind of what your company becomes and whether you have the right people around the table to help you build out your your vision. So, Min and Christine, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I have learned a lot. I'm sure Irene has learned a lot as well. And I'm sure all the women in our community will benefit from it as well. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit us on Instagram at Thea Healthcare and our website at theahc.org for more content. As always, feel free to reach out via DM or our website's contact form with any questions or comments for us or our guests. <laughs>